Hello, you're listening to Consuming Culture. I'm Kat McShane, I'm a journalist and filmmaker, and this podcast is all about how and why culture gets made, told through the eyes of the people who make it. Sounds simple, right? Well, I'm hoping this series gives some unique insights into what it means to be an artist when the big issues of the day, like wealth inequality, advances in technology and people-powered social movements, are fundamentally altering the way culture is made, consumed and valued. Bell is a performer, educator, and one of the smartest people I've ever met. Last year, I made a short film that included some of his work around binge-watching. It was a tiny insight into a big brain, and I wanted to use this podcast to dig deeper into how he turns his very personal life experiences into successful, often long-running shows that also help his participants. Hello. Oh, that's good. That's a relief because I was just thinking. I'm not sure how this um, this funny little system works, but here we are. I'm ready to start. Okay, Brian. Um, well, I know that you've got a show on at the moment called Binge, uh, and as the subject matter of this entire uh, podcast series is binge, um, I think it would be good to kick off with you about what your uh, show actually is. What happens in it? What is Binge the Show? So Binge the Show is my first foray into like really large scale digital one-to-one performances. Um, And basically it's been part of this La Jolla Playhouse WOW digital series um, where they commissioned a bunch of performances um, uh, to respond to COVID and the closing of their season. And my show is a show that I have been doing in person for the last year that I've now moved into a digital foray. So I'll just tell you a little bit about it. Um, It's based on my one-to-one called You Have to Forgive Me, You Have to Forgive Me, You Have to Forgive Me, in which I listen to a person's problems and then diagnose them with a episode of Sex and the City that will confront or hopefully solve these problems or get, give them a new perspective about these problems. Um, it's a bit more ritualized than this, but you know, it, it, it does feel like a performance. It's about 45 minutes with one person at a time. Um, and I've been doing that for, I've really been doing that for the last five years. I've been very interested in the kind of intimacy of just sitting with one person and, and listening to their concerns, trying to address them with this kind of ridiculous solution. But um, Sex and City often solves my problems, which we can talk about later. But um, and then we, you know, and then I kind of perform a monologue for them and we listen to a song together. It's very nice. I've been doing it for years, mostly in person, one to one, sometimes digitally with people. And then last year I had the idea that like I hated I loved the one to one encounter, but Mm -hmm. I knew that. For a lot of audience members, they might not have a connection with Sex and the City. They might not be interested in hearing advice from me, just as like the white cis guy that I am. Um, And I was thinking about how it might be possible to add a diversity of voices and practices. So Binge is like me actually working with other artists who use a box set that they know freakishly well to listen to people's problems and then to diagnose the solution. Um, and we've been doing that for last year in Man- Manchester, Birmingham, Glasgow. And then this time we um, 
did it online. So it's been these like one-to-one performances, 300 one-to-one performances by performers all over the world using their own box sets. So instead of it being Sex and the City, people are using The Simpsons, The Gilmore Girls, um, uh, the, the OC flavor of love, the real housewives dynasty, um, all these shows that the artists that I'm working Star Trek, Star Trek, the next generation, um, my so-called life, all these shows that a lot of our artists know back and forth. So that's just finishing now, but hope to do it another time, but we've been doing it digitally, which of course misses the quietness of sitting with someone and watching TV, but has still been nice for audiences to connect with people. Now, would you describe yourself as an artist, Brian? I usually use the word performer other than artist. I feel like an artist, you have to really take yourself very seriously. And I really, <laughs> admire, people, I really admire people that can, um, but I can't. It makes me giggle. And for me, actually, performer feels more accurate because an artist, you can be an artist on your own, but to be a performer, you have to perform with an audience in mind. Uh-huh. You know, performer implies audience, whereas artist doesn't necessarily. Um, and so I really think of my artwork as being performance because it's really all about my connection with an audience. When did you start becoming a performer? Ooh, um, it's a great question. I probably always wanted to be a performer, but I didn't know it. Um, but then I wanted, I was studying political science and theater directing uh, at, at university a number of years ago. And in the middle of my second year of university, I got cancer. And what happened was in that moment, I went, you know, I was always interested in theater, theater making, art, art making, um, and how those fit into the world, which is why I was interested in political science also. But then I suddenly went from being, I'm 6'1", if you can't see me, because uh, this is audio, um, I've got like adorable curly hair. I've got a really big nose and I'm very tall. Um, and I'm like a white cisgendered guy from a middle-class background. I'm American. And suddenly I went from someone who did never cause attention in public space. There's a theorist named Carrie Sandal, who's a disability um, theorist. And she talks about uh, disabled bodies causing commotion in public space and that she puts people in co-motion, like we all move together. Like I went from suddenly moving on my own to everywhere I moved, people were looking at me because I lost one third of my body weight. I lost my hair. I, you know, my eyes look like death. I, I kind of looked like I was mm-hmm. sick and suddenly I was in relationship with everybody. So it would just happen to be at that exact same moment that I met a solo performer uh, named Holly Hughes, who was very famous, a uh, solo performer. She was one of the NEA four who went to the Supreme Court to defend uh, freedom of speech inside of government funding. So she actually happened to be a teacher at Michigan at the same time. And she introduced me to the world of solo performance. And, she, and I realized that actually, as a sick person, I was always performing People were looking at me and I was looking back at them and we were in relationship to each other. So it was kind of at that moment that I became a solo performer. I was interested in that. Before then, I had never been interested in being on stage or in front of people. But 
that experience of illness did radically shift how I understood how people look at me and how we look at each other. And how else was that kind of time of of having cancer? How does that relate to your um, binge work? Binge watching. I'll remember my first binge watch. Um, In the first show that I wrote about having cancer, Mm -hmm. which is called All, I wrote, um, I was trying to capture the experience of being bored, of being like deeply bored. Mm. And because I was very, I had this horrible abdominal surgery and I was sick for months about it. It was, in fact, it was horrible. Um, And I, the way I captured it in the writing then was that I actually just went through my TV watching schedule, starting at five o'clock in the morning and ending up at 10 o'clock at night. And, you know, my morphine schedule in relationship to that. And when I was sick, I always loved watching TV. I was always someone who could watch four or five hours of a sitting at TV without, without question. But there was something about being ill, being unable to move. I literally had this swollen, horrific abdomen. I couldn't move from the chair that I was in. It was really uncomfortable. But I remember binge watching two things. One was the real world, which if you don't know that TV show, uh, was kind of like, I think it was a precursor to Big Brother. So real world, you know, this is about six strangers chose picked to live in a house and had their lives <laughs> taped, you know, when they stopped being polite and start getting real. And what they used to do um, during the day, during MTV, because of course MTV didn't have a ton of people watching it because mm-hmm. most people were like at school or at work. But during the day, what they would do is they would clip together all of the real world episodes. Mm. So they would cut out the final credits and they would cut out the intro credits. So actually you would just watch them and you would realize, oh, they didn't really end. They never really end. They never really started. You just, you could watch the entire, you know, real world Miami in a day. Cause it would just keep going on and on and on. And that was the first moment that I was kind of aware that I was, someone was doing something with me. That like much in the same way that Netflix, you know, will automatically turn on the next episode. The real world was already doing that, which is very exciting. Um, And then the other thing I binge watch, of course, was Sex and the City. So I was 20 when I had cancer and Sex and the City started when I was 17. So they were like kind of in the middle of season three, season four. I was had cancer at the same time that Steve had cancer, testicular cancer. My mother wrote a letter to Darren Starr about the portrayal of testicular cancer. She didn't think it was very funny, which is, of course, heartbreaking because, like, of course, my cancer to my mother was never funny. But I was actually a little bit more able to laugh about it. Um, But also, you know, the whole show is about sex, sexual awakening, sexual empowerment. And, you know, between 17 and 23, I, like, came out, you know, I... I had sex with men for the first time. I got cancer in my genitals. You know, I like then had real relationships. You know, all of this happened. And also 9-11 happened in that time. The Iraq war happened. You know, America Mm. went through a huge shift and I went through a huge shift. And my aunt bought the Sex and the City VHS tapes for me. And actually, I didn't even have a choice about whether to binge it or not because the VHS... Um, remote was always broken. (laughs) It never worked. And so I just watched four or eight episodes in a day 
and it would automatically rewind and automatically start playing again. And I would just watch them over and over again. And in some ways I was kind of high a lot of it, the mm-hmm. time on morphine or Percocet or whatever I was taking pain-wise. And some ways I just like loved it. I loved watching the same thing over and over again. It felt really comforting. I always felt like I was learning something new. I could occasionally watch the director's commentary, which was very fun. Um, Cause they used to have those on VHS, right? They would just keep rolling on. Mm-hmm. That's how binge is related to cancer. Just, it was during that time that I started really having the time Mm. to do it now I make time to do it but I think then the time was kind of made for me and then how long after that did you make your first show related to that period Uh, about cancer I mean I I was kind of always writing my show with I didn't know that I was writing a show about cancer I thought I was just keeping a journal but pretty much right after cancer was over did I start thinking oh maybe I should be telling people this story, mostly so they stop asking me questions about it because it feels annoying to keep repeating the same questions and answers over and over again. It's just more efficient if I make a one-hour-long solo show about it. Mm. <laughs> but it was a very long time before I really publicly felt comfortable talking about television watching in my art practice because it's kind of shameful. It's not... I mean, it's now it's much higher art than it used to be, but it mm. wasn't considered a proper topic for academic or artistic consideration. What kind of work have you developed out out of um, your, basically your love for and respect for television? I mean, you know, binge and TV watching reflections probably make up about 30% of the artistic work that I do. I do still do a lot of work on illness and health and on kind of sexuality and on interactivity kind of generally. Um, But I'm, I love thinking about binge watching TV and I love talking to other people about it. It really started, there were two things that happened at the same time in about 2014. One, it was the 10th anniversary of the final episode of Sex and the City, which sounds like a probably a nothing to anyone. But to me, it was really significant. And I, you know, I remember that final day of watching with my friends and feeling like I was bereft of some old friends that they were leaving. Um, and I definitely cared about the four, four women, everyone. And I wanted to honor that 10 years later, but I also thought that was really silly. So I thought I could make fun of that in some way. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so I started by making a show. I made three shows about the 10 year anniversary of the final episode of Sex and the City, which is a ridiculous thing to do. I made... You Have to Forgive Me, the one-to-one that I made in bed with people. I made a show called I Couldn't Help But Wonder, in which I recited all 92 questions that Carrie Bradshaw types on Sex and the City. And then the final show that I made about my love for TV, which was my favorite, and I haven't done again since, was called Annabelle Bronstein. Mm -hmm. Now, do you know, are you a Sex and the City super fan, Kat? I don't think I would say that I'm a super fan, no. I wouldn't say you were either because if you were, you would know the name Annabelle Bronstein. Because Annabelle Bronstein is the name Samantha Jones um, swipes from Soho House to get into the pool. Okay, I do know the episode though. Okay. She passed herself off as Annabelle Bronstein. But, and 
she's called out by a British waiter who says that she's from Sussex. And so, and I always thought it was like a strange thing because, of course, British people don't really, you know, we don't, we don't say some Sussex. It's just like, it's not like, the way it's said is very American. <laughs> oh, I'm from Sussex. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people from Sussex would say it like that. Anyway, um, and she, um, so I did a show for Brighton Pride, which of course, Brighton in Sussex, and I built a paddling pool in the main square in Brighton, had tons of cosmopolitans, and had four wigs, and a laminated script of the entire episode that is my favorite episode of Sex and City, which is the one um, about about Annabelle Bronstein. And so people could have a cosmopolitan if they took their pants off and sat in the paddling pool with me. I, I, I didn't mean to sound flippant before about kind of making a livelihood out of um, out of your love of TV. Obviously, it's not just about television. It's about what people get out of binge watching and the place that it holds in people's lives and what it gives people. Um, and you were... That's why it's so emotional. Like, I think people, I have found that all the one-to-ones that I've done, and for so many of the artists that I've curated in Binge, they have really profound conversations with people because the people are talking about how they compare their lives to fictional characters for the better or for the worse, or how when they're sad, they watch a certain show because it cheers them up, which of course makes them also sad to think about that. Um, it also gets them to think about the strategies that they use to decompress, which of course makes them think about all their compression. And because TV is not such a respected topic for people to talk about publicly, uh, to talk about how they're obsessed with so much TV, um, when I start to do it with people, they really let their guard down. Mm. They let their guard down. Because I say, I'm not an expert at psychology. Mm. I'm an expert at Carrie, Charlotte, Samantha, and Miranda. That's what I'm an expert at, which is not intimidating to them, but allows them to really open up. What have been some of the responses that have most moved you over the years when you've been doing one-to-one performances with people in this show? Um... The best, the best responses are always those when, you know, Sex in the City hasn't aged perfectly. The times that I've had the most interesting conversations with people have been the times that they want to talk to me about something that Sex in the City doesn't have a good answer for. Any experience of real death or trauma or sexual assaults or real hardened politics trans politics, et cetera. So that together the audience member and I have to kind of figure out what the show is telling us, although it is a finite thing. It, it doesn't, it doesn't tell us about domestic violence because it doesn't include it. It doesn't talk about sexual assault, but actually audience members have opened uh, information up to me. Uh, that felt like real disclosures. But people have talked about the death of parents that have slowed their sex lives down or changed their romantic lives. They've talked about really old breakups that they Mm. just can't get over. Um, They've talked, uh, you know, people have talked about their experience of sexual assault. They've talked about experience of domestic violence. They've they've talked about real stress during COVID. Mm. And... 
And it's funny because with something like TV, which is such a strong shared experience, mm. people are like, oh, you know about Sex and the City, so do I. I can trust you. But I think that that is what we share with people who are super fans of another thing. We speak the same language. There's a, there's a kind of nationality to it. And, and of course, that's what we see with extreme fandom, right? So Star Trek communities or, um, you know, people who are, you know, wild about certain shows, you know, drag cons, things like this. You know, there's the reality and fictional ones, people who are, you know, who will spend, you know, 40 hours in line at a meet and greet for someone from Game of Thrones. You know, there's something about, there's a really intense articulation of what it means to share that nationality. But I just also think it's nice to hear, oh, you watch that? Oh, I watch that. We share something because we both know the world that that was in. Is that, is that crazy? No, I, I, I suppose it makes me wonder is whether, like, connectivity to your audience is obviously what it feels like it's very, very important uh, to you. And I just wonder, like, is that quite unusual for a performer or certainly what we might classify as an artist? Like, what is it that you get out of having these very intimate, uh, although quite momentary uh, interactions with your with your audience? Why is it so important to you that you have that intimacy? I just think it's so rude for an artist to decide what an audience needs. So I never know what an audience needs. I need to be alive with them to understand what they need and what I need. I mean, those things, they, those things do come together. I want to find audiences that want the work that I'm doing. I don't want to convince an audience member that they want my show. Part of the reason why streamed theater doesn't work as well as film is that theater is made to presume an audience's presence. The laughter, the breathing, the sound of someone maybe getting up or down or maybe a phone going off. There's always threat. There's liveness in an audience that something could go wrong and, and therefore it intensifies the commitment. But of course, film and TV are not, of course they have an audience in mind. They know they have a viewer, but the viewer is not impacting the story, right? It just, mm-hmm. it just can't. So for me, I'm just taking that to the extreme, which is to say, I really only care about the presence of the audience. I don't care about getting through the Tennessee Williams script. It's just not important to me. And in fact, sometimes this, you know, the, the one-to-ones about TV, if someone comes with a big problem, I kind of set, set it up and do the ritual at the end, um, for them, but we often don't even watch a TV episode together. We just keep talking. If people decide that they want to just keep talking, then that feels more important than doing what I wanted to do. So it's always about constantly navigating what the art is actually about, but, but keeping, I keep to a relatively tight score. I'm not just bringing someone into a space together and be like, well, what should we do? I mean, of course I have an idea of what I want them to get out of it. I have a thesis, but the, you know, but the essay can go however we want it to go, to use a school example. Have you ever encountered any sort of, any kind of sniffing or uh, around the idea of you using, um, making work around binge culture or making work around television? Like it's not like real art. 
I just get, you know what? It's, it's like this. <sighs> that's what I get. I get a giggle. And of, and of course that's, that's me too. And that's probably some of my own shame in telling them about that thing. But like, I get this, uh, or sometimes, and that's it. They're, they're not mean to me. They don't like say you're an idiot, but I don't care if people get why it's important. Mm. If people want to think I'm an idiot, they're welcome to it. I keep really good company. I keep good company. I keep radical company. I keep smart company. And I always say, you know what, I wouldn't be surrounded with such brilliant, engaged people if I was a fucking idiot. That I just don't think that they would. So I have to say like, oh, actually you are doing something that's interesting, that adds to the, the dialogue of understanding people's human lives. Because I think, but yeah, but the short answer to your question is, I don't get real snickers. I get kind of a, ah, in a way that makes me feel like they don't take it as seriously as I'd like them to. But then I also very quickly remind myself, I don't really care. No, exactly. I could imagine that maybe like you would get some of that. And also your work is not just about like TV. Watching TV is about my relationship with sexuality. It's about my relationship with my family. It's about how I understand the world, how the world understands me. I want to talk about when shows fail us, what what happens when Bill Cosby is, seen, is found out to be a serial rapist, what happens when episodes get pulled off of TV because they were, you know, fucking offensive years ago and people said it, complained about mm-hmm. that. I mean, all these things are the 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 turning points of our conversation. And what's funny now is that I think they used to call TV like water cooler moments, right? Yeah, yeah. When we find out who killed, um, what's her name? Amanda Palmer on Twin Peaks. You know, that was a moment when, you know, Shannon, when Brenda loses her virginity on 90210. That's a moment, you know, when, when Phoebe and Ross were, um, having their, well, not Phoebe and Ross, Ma, Ra, Ross and Rachel, of course, Ross and Rachel, when they had their breakup, that was like huge conversation. And what happens now is Netflix is that we're all encountering the TV shows at slightly different times. We're not all watching them, you know? So the dialogue has changed a little bit. You know, I actually love soaps. I don't watch them, but I can like get into them. And I, and there is, you know, Hollyoaks, it's stuff that like actually like also like tackles some like big issues in a way that is, you know, I've talked to the writing team from Hollyoaks and their relationship with safeguarding procedures and charities that they work with and public advocacy campaigns. Like television is incredibly important about getting us to experiment with our lives, think about new possibilities. You know, I think that recent film uh, Disclosure, the yeah. documentary about trans lives on film and on TV is like so important because it just shows about like how a movement is led by the power of representation. So like we do learn about things. When Hollyoaks was saying like we've had a we've had a series on grooming, suddenly there's like reports of grooming. You know, like people come forward to talk about these issues. So 
TV does have an educative value, of course. It's not not really why I watch it, but like, but I also did learn to model my life off of strong-minded people that felt empowered and you know that felt sexual, which is why Sex and the City was important to me. The real world was important to me. All those things, because I I grew up much more sheltered than most people that I saw on TV. And in some ways, living my bigger life happened mm. quicker. I'm sure I would have gotten there, but it happened quicker because I did have some role models that made me feel bold. As we talked, Brian revealed that he'd started looking at the science of binge watching and how it could be made better for people's health. I found this a bold idea and potentially antagonistic to the model of a company like Netflix that needs us to consume ever more for ever longer. Uh, I'm the professor of theater and performance at Rose Bruford College, which is a small drama school. I work a lot with young adults with cancer, um, but I also do this binge project, which I've been working on with King's, uh, King's Culture Institute, um, where I've been trying to work with um, an amazing kind of a computer scientist, data scientist, Nishant Sastri, to try to think more about the big data related to binge watching, trying to think about cliffhangers and our emotional responses to them in storytelling and how we could disrupt that, especially if binge watching becomes addictive, but also trying to think about what people are thinking about in a deep binge like if there's some potential in binge watching, I think people always think of it as a really passive activity, mm -hmm. but I guess I try to think of it as something that's more, can be passive, can also be really destructive, can get people in a loop, but could also be restorative in some way, can be restful, can give us space to think about things. Um, trying to think about, you know, binge watching in its, in its full potential. One of the projects that we're making is called The Cliffhugger, which is about trying to use artificial intelligence to predict uh, how cliffhangers are made and then to automatically take them out of TV shows. So oh my people... goodness, is isn't binge watching all yeah, about Yeah, so I'm interested in pulling away from the desire to have a cliffhanger ending, which of course people still do. Even shows that are on Netflix, they dramatically go towards a point that make you want to watch the next. So the goal of the cliffhugger is to take the content, but instead of dangling you off a cliff, it kind of hugs you and puts you to sleep. And it says like, okay, you've watched this content. It's time to go to sleep right now. And of course, any TV writer would absolutely hate the project that I'm thinking about, but... I think that we, if we could prove that there are enough people that have a problem with binge watching, we might see this as one solution which people could safely engage with narrative, safely engage with a binge watch culture, mm -hmm. and that then maybe people could be prescribed whatever this computer program is, and they only watch it with like special medical dispensation. <laughs> I don't know. It's like a ridiculous idea. But the goal is, you know, inside of a ridiculous idea, there might be some interesting learning that comes out along the way. So we're doing kind of natural language processing on scripts, because of course, scripts will tell us, we will be able to predict if we can understand the script, how a 
cliffhanger is made. I'm particularly interested in soaps for this reason, because not that they're formulaic, but that they do have all a pattern of when commercial breaks will happen, when the credits will roll, et cetera, instead of going across different series. And of course, a soap opera will have a huge data set, which is really what you need to make any kind of computer programming possible. What strikes me, actually, is some of the negative connotations of binging, right? It's addictive. Um, It's bad for people's mental health. It's bad for people's physical health. All these things that kind of uh, have been flung at binge watching. And you, on the other hand, you're saying, like, not only does binge watching have a place in terms of people's, um, you know, just like relaxation, taking time out, taking time to reflect. But also now you're trying to come up with a way to like make it better for people in terms of cliff huggers, right? Uh, I feel like there's a very strong sense of doing good in your work. Yeah, I I would, I hope so. I I don't want to, I'm not... I'm not, I'm no martyr. No. I, I feel this very profoundly. I think that we live in a really horrific world and I want to use, in many ways, I want to use my advocacy and voice to help amplify voices that really need to be heard marginalized voices. A lot of the work that I do, particularly around cancer, is about marginalized voices of care. That feels really important and critical to me. But I guess in my own artwork, I want to just provide a a comfort to people in different ways. And I feel like that's where I can add. And And that comfort, hopefully, is not just for people like me, but for a much broader side, because I I feel less um in need of screaming about a particular agenda. I mean, the, the, the Sex and the City show, the one-to-one that I did, there there's like was something else that happened at the same time as the 10th anniversary, which was 10th anniversary of the final episode, which was that there were three men named Chris, theater makers, very good theater makers. They all made work at the same exact time, and they all named work Chris, and they all made shows where they yelled at the audience for a really long time. And they were screaming and their music was loud. And like, this is not usually the kind of work that I go for. And I really admired them. But there was a tweet from a London critic that said, oh, we can tell that the world is is horrible right now because artists are yelling at their audience and they're screaming, everything is so loud. And I responded almost violently to that, that logic, which was like, Everywhere I look, on, on the street, in the news, on my social media feeds, on the, in the phone calls that I'm having with friends, the world is in so much pain. And why would I, in order to deal with that pain artistically, cre- create a metaphor about it? I'm not interested in like also screaming at someone so they understand what horrors look like. That's just not what it is. I just said, I was like, all I want to do is provide some comfort to people. And what is comforting to me? Watching TV with a friend. So, okay, I'll make a show where I dress in pajamas and invite people to to sit and talk on a bed with me. And that might be the comfort that I add, which hopefully allows some other people to violently fight the violent fights that they are. And maybe that's a cop-out, 
uh, as an ally, but I just think that like, what I can do is to make metaphors of comfort and of quiet um, inside a much larger world of noise. And I just never understood that thing of like, if I scream, I, I show you what pain is. I didn't want to over-egg it, but before we finished up, I had to ask how much of a turning point in Brian's artistic life getting cancer was. And it turns out, it was maybe more in my head than in his reality. For sure, he said, it turned him into a performer, and his need to secure healthcare had provoked a move to London from the States, which was where he found his feet in his career. But since then, other life events had proved just as big spurs in his professional life. But obviously, like, having cancer, that has that shifted your politics and your work forever basically how much of your work really stems from that period I'm just wondering if I mean I think of it I I was actually just re-watching the X-Men movies the other day right. um, and what I love about it is that yeah. they talk about human evolution moves slowly over millions of years but at some points it leaps forward and actually cancer was a leap but, you know, not everything has one origin point, but a lot does stem from this story. And I tried to transition in my own life from making work about my own experience of cancer to being more about what I learned from interacting with people through and beyond that cancer, which is really the more, more the point. But for me, every art project that I've made has come out of a direct desire for me to achieve something in my own life. I made the show about sex in the city because I needed to feel like I was comforting people. So I made a show in which I could comfort people. The cancer show was about um, getting everyone sat down in a room so I can say, just listen, I got a story to tell you. So I don't want to keep answering these questions. And I think that a lot of other patients uh, liked that work because they felt the same. They could tell what I was doing. I did a show where I deleted all of my Facebook friends via public vote. That came after the death of my friend and trying to think about what an online connection means. Um, this was my best friend who was also my first boyfriend, but we weren't together at the time of his death. Um, I needed to go through my friends and to think about who was real, who wasn't, what that was. But then, of course, it becomes a show about social media and about connection. But really, for me, it was about just achieving this thing. I made a show with my mother, uh, an opera show mm. with my mother, because my mother told me that she hated my performance work. So I said, well, I have to make a show that you wouldn't hate so you don't hate my work. And I, it's a pretty way long way around the houses to achieve a point. But actually, audiences, when they saw that point, could understand what I was trying to do was to make my mother not hate my work. And that had metaphors for a lot of other people about their relationship with their parents, mm. feelings of shame or embarrassment or pride. So like, but it's never about the, sh it's never about the thing. This show was never about sex in the city. It was always about me needing to sit with people and to hug people or sit in our pajamas silently together. Brian says his work is about achieving something in his life, but his reference points are some of the biggest themes and experiences many of us will encounter in our lives, like death, cancer, and the relationship with our mothers. What I learned was that while the production of culture is always shaped by the world around us, for it to carry an audience, it has to come from the artist's heart. 
Thanks for joining us on Consuming Culture, and thanks also to my guest, Brian LaBelle. The series was conceived and produced by me, Kat McShane. Editing was by Dan Bolger. Make sure to visit us on Instagram, where you can see artwork especially commissioned for the series. If you don't want to miss future shows, then please do subscribe. If you like what you hear, we'd appreciate a rating. Baby